I invite you to pray with me. Almighty God, it is with gratitude that we come together and we worship today. It is with thanksgiving that we can look to our left and our right and find co-laborers, fellow travelers on our journey of life and what a journey it has been in this week, in this season that we so often label as a time of commencement. We remember how commencement marks both a conclusion and a new beginning. And we remember especially today those students and those households, those educators, those neighborhoods who have traveled a long way and now come to a formal conclusion of one stage of life, only to realize that there is more. And to those who have gathered today, recognizing turns in their own lives that mark endings, they realize with every ending there is a new beginning. And gracious God, we confess today that we're not sure we have the energy or the strength, the gifts, the capacities that we have what it takes to begin again apart from you who stand with us at every turn of life before and during and after. And so open our hearts and our minds our very lives, to the ways you are at work, even in these times of transition. That we might discover your unfailing love when we feel that our love is depleted. That we discover your compassion when our hearts are empty. That we discover your strength when we feel weak and your victory where we feel only defeat. Gracious God, you have called us with every ending to begin again. For that is at the heart of our faith as we look to the one who lived and died and indeed by your power and your spirit rose again to new life. May that be ours today. In small ways, in large ways, as we remember and as we offer our thanks for the witness of your grace and your power, may it be our sustaining word as we undertake all that lies ahead. May it begin now as we worship, as we sing our songs of praise. In Jesus' name, amen.
grateful to y'all, and to you, Danny and Brian, Amber, and to all of you for joining together in this time of worship. Over the summer, as I mentioned last week, we're going to be walking through the summer guided by the insights of the Psalms, the ancient hymn book of Israel. And if you look in our own pews, we do have hymnals as well, hundreds of songs written by souls across time that share in very unique and varied perspectives the experience of life and life with God, and God's life with us. There are many ways to understand how the Psalms lead us in the same way that music does, uh, but I was telling Amber, one of the things I learned early on in ministry is there are some Christians who come with an expectation and indeed a spiritual need and temperament that requires kind of well-thought, uh, carefully articulated words, a well-structured argument, as it were, something persuasive to move your minds to a place of new thinking. Uh, and then there are people like me uh, who need something within our hearts to be moved, fueled, brought out, and for there to be some sort of emotional connection. And so somewhere between prose and poetry, we all sort of land on that spectrum of needs. And in many ways, the Psalms speak thoughtfully, they speak directly, they speak very candidly uh, to life as it is, but they also bring a sort of poetry and a music that we also celebrate here at Yates so often. So no matter what you bring to worship in terms of your own spiritual kind of language need, somewhere between thoughtful words like, say, Brian's or Danny's, or, or music that speaks to your heart and moves you, whether you need to be persuaded or moved, uh, this summer, I hope that we can, as we rest together and reflect on the Psalms, that we'll hear a word we need to say. To understand how the Psalms are structured, one, one way that I found really helpful was to understand that in some way, the Psalms speak to one of three states of our being. And the first is what we could generally talk about as orientation. That is, things are pretty okay in my world. My life with others, my life with God, the nature of the neighborhood, everything is, is pretty okay. And when things are pretty okay, let's be honest, it's easier to kind of find the sunny side of life and sing the sunny side of life. There are psalms for the sunny side of life. There are also times in our lives when everything is not as it should be. And in a small or personal way, or in a large or global way, everything has shifted on his axis, and you no longer recognize yourself, or your neighbor, or your world. And the profound sense of despair that comes when we are disoriented by the inevitable disruptions of our lives. A health crisis, a loss, a setback, a failure. Whatever it may be, all of a sudden we discover that we are disoriented and we cry out. 
sometimes lamenting the way things are, sometimes seeking help from beyond ourselves. Then there is a reorientation where we return to a place of settledness now formed by the hard experience of our disorientation. Somewhere in your life, you may find yourself or parts of your life at any of those three categories. And the Psalms, either directly or in one Psalm, may embrace all three of those and call us to listen more deeply to our lives and to be honest about where we are and find a point of connection in the words and in the song. And so today, this is something of an orientation psalm. And it calls us to full-throated praise. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O Savior, hide till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven, guide, O receive my soul at last. Charles Wesley wrote that one. Among many, many hymns. What I love about that hymn, though, is that it wasn't inspired by some existential crisis uh, of, of, of mind or emotion. It wasn't inspired by some internal storm of doubt and fear. It was a real-life storm, wind, waves, rain. Wesley wrote it while he was on the Atlantic Ocean, returning from America on his way back to England. And it was a time when traveling by sea was quite dangerous. And while he was still on that voyage, they encountered a horrible storm. And Wesley wrote about it in his journal. I prayed for power to pray, he writes, for faith in Jesus Christ. Continually repeating his name till I felt the virtue of it at last. And I knew that I abode under the shadow of the Almighty. The storm was at its height. 
at four o'clock, the ship had made so much water that the captain, finding it impossible otherwise to save her from sinking, cut down the mizzenmast. In this dreadful moment, I blessed God. I found comfort and hope and such joy in finding I could hope as the world can never give or take away. I had the conviction of the power of God present with me, overruling fear and raising me above what I am by nature, as surpassed by all rational evidence. After the storm subsided, my first business today, may it be the first business of all my days, was to offer up the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Wesley offered praise as a response to God's saving power. Others in our hymnals have written songs about spiritual salvation or a dramatic change in life from who they were before. Wonderful songs of praise that encourage each of us in one way or another to walk through difficult times. Remembering we are not alone. Remembering not only that we struggle together, but that God is with us. And even more, God in God's own inimitable way is behind us and before us, beside us, above us, beneath us. And it's hard to find words to capture all of that. For me, for you, but worship is more than just God and me. We need to expand our worship in such a way that we can at least acknowledge how big God really is. And so we read Psalm 96 today, and it's written for royalty. It's part of what scholars call the enthronement psalms. So Psalm 93, 94, 96, I mean, excuse me, 95, 96, all the way through 99, call on people to praise God. They give reasons why God is worthy of praise. And when you take them all together, we can at least begin to acknowledge just how deep and wide and high and broad the love of God really is. And so this is a motivational psalm. I was sort of toying with the idea that maybe I could get you know, Mike up there on the timpani and just bang away while I was reading it or you know, get uh, you know, Frank or uh, just somebody to play the trumpet to do something to awaken us. This is a psalm that keeps us out of the spectator box and moves us into the action. It awakens those of us who are asleep and it's full of imperatives, calls to action, things that are shout. Three times we're called to sing. After that, to bless and to tell and to declare and to ascribe and to worship. It's a motivational psalm. It moves people to proclaim who God is and who God is in God's mercy and in God's might. And so they're called to sing a new song. And that's, boy, that's dangerous business in church. Everyone's got their favorite songs, and they don't always like new songs. Um, I was sort of tickled last week. I was listening to the live stream, and there was a moment in one of the songs where it sort of broke into this antiphonal moment where the girls, ladies sang, and the men sang, and all those things. And then you could hear, (laughs) and I'm sorry, you could hear Ted clear as day go, come on, Ernie. 
Um, and, <laughs> uh, you know, being called out to sing and to sing a new song. We're constantly writing new songs as new things come to our lives. Maybe remembering where we've been in the past or recognizing our anxiety about the future. Somehow bringing together where we've been, where we are, and where we will be. Sing. And sing the song that gives voice to that experience. Don't hide from it. And don't bury it. The song you sing matters. From there, we bless God's name. Now, of course, God doesn't need our blessing. But in worship, this call to bless God is a call to tell of God's work, God's saving deeds, to talk about God's mercy or God's might or God's compassion. And as I look around the room and as I've listened to your stories, I know that you have been personally touched, your households have been touched, and you're aware of how our church has been led through such times when we felt like we were in a pit and then led out of the pit. And we can sing about those times but it doesn't stop there then the worshipers are called not only to sing their own song or even to sing their own little congregational song they're called to sing it to the nations and so sometimes psalm 96 is called a missionary psalm that the proclamation we have is not internal to us but instead the good news as danny said so well that's embedded that we often take for granted in our life together is good news to share with a world that needs to hear what God has done and what God is doing and what God shall do. And so the verses that follow, verses 4 through 6, tell why God is to be praised in comparison to all of the gods which are merely idols in the world. We praise God who is creator and a redeemer and our sustainer. In the words of Paul, this is the God in whom we live and we move and we have our being. And as we remember who this God is, in whom we have life, we remember that God is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 96 captures it really powerfully. Honor and majesty are before God. God's strength and holiness and beauty fill the sanctuary. And so while all of us can see glimpses of God around us and in one another, God is not those things. God is not those persons. God chooses to dwell and inhabit this space with us in ways that we can sense or know or see and grow to trust. And so we sing about those things. We move back to the imperative in verses 7 through 10. We're told to ascribe glory to God, to ascribe. That means to sort of name, itemize the character traits of God. In many ways, we can learn from God's word what some of those traits are. In other ways, if you're like me, maybe you also need to experience some of them to know what it means to receive mercy or love unconditional or a new start and as we begin to develop and cultivate that trusting 
relationship with God. Then we can begin to ascribe in a more full-throated fashion the same words that may read dryly on the page. But when they're from our lips, fueled by our own experience, we can sing that song. The song concludes with words of judgment. And so sometimes in lectionaries, it's, it's not read. But creation responds with joy to the judgment of God. And in many ways, I've puzzled over how to articulate it this week. And I think there are lots of things we could learn. But today, maybe it's enough to say, because God judges, we can rest. And creation can rest from the burden of having to make the final and fullest assessment of others or of situations. That we can busy ourselves with the imperatives of love and blessing and ascribing and singing to one another and to the nations and allow God to be the judge that we all trust. Would you rather have God or me be your judge after all? That's how the psalm takes us through praise and through the different contours of praise. But I want to spend the balance of our time as we approach the table of our Lord today simply to reflect on why it matters and how we might find our place in it. Two stories, the first from Will Willimon. Uh, most of you know, uh, Dean Willimon was dean of Duke Chapel. He was the United Methodist Bishop. He's now sort of inhabiting space at Duke, just sort of moving about freely about the cabin, as it were. But he tells a story of when he was a working pastor and how critical it was for churches to maintain a posture of praise, even in the midst of the dark and difficult realities of our individual lives and of this world. And so at the end of the day, Wilmont said he decided to visit a member of his congregation who was a lawyer. And he dropped by the office of this attorney. Everyone had gone home, but the lawyer, of course, was working late. And so Wilmont started the conversation. He says, well, what sort of day have you had? And the lawyer replied, well, it was a typical day, full of misery. In the morning, I assisted a couple to evict their aging father from his house so they could take everything while he was in the nursing home. All legal, not particularly moral, but legal. By lunchtime, I was helping a client evade his workers' comp insurance payment. It's legal. This afternoon, I've been enabling a woman to ruin her husband's life forever with the sweetest divorce you ever saw. That's my day. Wilmont thought to himself, what can I say? The lawyer continued, and this explains why I'm in your church on Sunday morning. Willimon replied, well, I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed, thinking what on earth I have to say in a sermon that might help you on Sunday. And the lawyer said, it's not the sermon I come for. It's the music. I go a whole week with nothing beautiful, little good, until Sunday. Sometimes when the choir sings, he said, it is for me the difference between death life. That 
That's why it's important for us to sing our songs and to continue to sing our new songs. But it's not enough to learn new music, obviously. Sometimes the new song is the same song sung with a renewed heart. Back in the late 1990s, Soul Survivor, a church in England, that was sort of an up-and-coming, emergent church, very popular, great music, um, had a pastor who did something I think was quite brave. One of the church members recalls the Sunday when the pastor decided to get rid of the sound system and to dismiss the band and was going to do this for a season until it was time to resume. And so the church just gathered together with no technology, no you know, light show or any of the rest, just their voices. And the point the pastor had been trying to make was that the church had lost its way in some ways in worship. Or maybe it's, it's better to say the church had kind of collectively become so concerned with the externals they had lost their heart in worship. And as they become so fixated on things that they can measure or their rising notoriety or you know, the, kind of the, the sensational experience they were having of, of being noticed by others, they had relocated themselves from the heart of worship to something else. And so the pastor very boldly stripped it all away and told the congregation that the church were producers of worship. They weren't just consumers. When you come through the doors on Sunday, this member remembers him saying, what are you bringing as you're offering to God? And so they sat in silence for a long time, an embarrassingly long time, as this member remembers it. But eventually they broke out into a cappella singing and very heartfelt prayers, and they encountered God in a very fresh way. And so in that church member's words, before long, we did reintroduce musicians and the sound system, though admittedly some of the members of the praise team left. They were offended that they were not needed in the way they wanted to be needed. But we had gained a new perspective, he said, that worship is all about Jesus and commands a response in the depths of our souls, no matter what the circumstances and setting. And that church member named Matt Redman then composed a new song from the experience called The Heart of Worship. When the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, Jesus. A new song. A new song from his heart, from his experience, from the way that he'd been led to hear God in a new way, but even more, a song that came from a new heart, a renewed, transformed life. And so today we celebrate together the gift of grace that Jesus offers the world that we have received and we trust as the church. We're invited into a relationship with God in whom we live and with whom we, we move and we have our being. We have not achieved any of this but it comes by trusting that what was necessary has come to pass. 
and is made available in the life and in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus. In him there is new life. There is a new start. And we're invited to collaborate with God to share in a life here and now that heals, hurts, and breaks chains and reconciles enemy and points the world to a day when all shall be made right. Sing a new song from your heart. If you can't think of a new one, sing the old one and ask for a new heart. And God will take care of the rest. Amen.